You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features part two of my interview with Demetrius Pipkin, who serves as a digital producer for CNN. Now, during the latter half of our conversation, we not only continue on Demetrius's career journey, including how he made his way to CNN, but we also discuss how he leveraged a $62,000 salary to purchase an apartment in New York. Since then, Demetrius's life has continued to evolve. Among other things, we get into his recent engagement and relocation, both of which occurred in the age of COVID, as well as how he was able to cope with being deeply entrenched in CNN's coverage of the death of George Floyd and the subsequent civil unrest. So without further ado, here's the rest of his story. I want to go back to the point you made about the money piece and white privilege and just oftentimes I do think black and brown folks, particularly black folks, go into these jobs. And because we don't have a point of reference, we don't even counter offer. Well, looking I, back, I, do you think there was an opportunity to do that? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I, I, we, we don't counter offer. We don't negotiate. We don't know our worth. We don't know our worth. That's what it comes down to. I felt like I was a prize at 62000 I was like, yo, this is the money I'm supposed to be making. Then... As the years go on and I learned what people actually make in this industry and what people at 48 Hours were doing, you know, like the producers there were making and I'm doing all the hard work and I was making $13, like mind blowing, mind blowing. It's just not fair. It's just, it's, right. it's ridiculous. But I would never know because I'm not in the know. I was this kid from, you know, the West that didn't know any better, right? So anyway, I know now, but uh, at the time I got this job and it was really this this is getting me to how I was able to buy a house because mm-hmm. I bought a house at that job I wasn't making a lot of money either but I was able to buy a, a place or not a house I bought an apartment but still in New York in New York City yeah it's it's still to be said it's, it's something good to be said but um but this job was very transforma- uh transformational for me I I within the first few months of that job I was traveling across the country because this was 20 2016. No, no, I'm lying. 2012, maybe it was an election year. I know that. So I think it was 2012. And uh, so I'm traveling across the country talking to kids and and Channel One, if you don't know, it's an educational news show. Um, It broadcasts to students across the country into high schools and middle schools. Um, So our target demographic was high school and middle school kids. But we covered all of the same stories that you would see on your regular news, but just tailored it to kids. So I was traveling across the country talking to young kids about what issues matter to you in this election. Even if you can't vote, what matters to you, right? And because that's not what anybody ever worries about. They're always worried about what the voters think. But really, it's the younger generation that is key in the future, right? They're the key to the future. So when you have kids saying, well, the environment or, you know, minimum wage being raised or college tuition is too much, like those are topics we're talking about today in this administration. But I was talking to kids in 2012 or 2013 or 2014 or whatever year it was, and they were saying the same thing, right? So we're now at that point. But anyway, I traveled the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, think I, I think before that trip, I had only ever been to England and maybe Mexico. I started traveling to the, the most random places around the world that, you know, like some places were, you know, England, Germany, stuff like that. And then some places were like, 
uh, like Malta. Like, mm-hmm. why would you ever go to Malta? You know, but there were stories there. So I covered but a I, huge range of stories on at that job, which was great. So I, you know, I'm still stuck on the whole purchasing an apartment. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, even, so even for at 62 grand, right? Okay, the mechanics yep. of that. If you were in Raleigh, Durham, I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah. yeah but yeah, yeah. to do that in New York is a different kind of experience. So okay. how were you able? You know, we get into the nitty gritty in this. Show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's great. Split sixty two k a year that salary into purchasing apartment in New York City. Okay, so after the first year of our lease in our apartment in Harlem, we we had a really nice spot in Harlem. Now this this will blow your mind because you're a New Yorker. You understand? We had a three bedroom apartment, all new appliances, new kitchen, and all that. It wasn't huge, but it was big enough. Three bedrooms. We paid two thousand dollars total. Okay, that makes no sense. Right okay. now, because because that doesn't exist anymore. That's not a thing, <laughs> right? So so we were splitting the rent two thousand dollars, three bedrooms. It was about six hundred and change, right? Six hundred and change is doable, right? I had friends paying a thousand, twelve hundred. You know, like mm-hmm. that. That was six hundred and change is is okay, even on thirteen dollars an hour, even on sixty two thousand dollars a year. That is okay. That is enough money to put a little aside, you know? The problem was, well, and then, and then one of my roommates got a boyfriend and moved him in. So there was four of us in that room. I mean, in that apartment, splitting $2,000, which was great. We were in the 500s now, you know? Mm -hmm. But then our lease was coming up to a close after two years. And one of my roommates wanted to move back home, or I think actually she was moving to Chicago with her boyfriend. Her boyfriend had got a job in Chicago. Me and my other friend from Las Vegas, we decided we were going to go our separate ways. So we all needed new housing. So I start looking for housing. And I was like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if I could like buy a place, like instead of renting? I, I grew up, you know, in Vegas, everybody has a house. You know, I, I'm not the, about this apartment life, but it would be cool if I owned something here. I was like, let me just, let me just see what I can find, right? I, let me just go shopping, window shopping. I'm not ready yet, but let me just go window shopping. And granted, I was, I was also, um, you know, I used to do some investments and stuff. I was, I've, I've always been a good saver. I started learning how to use the stock market and stuff like that. Um, so I had some money put away in the market that I had just been investing and trying different things. And, you know, I was just a young kid learning and losing money and gaining money and stuff like that. So I was like, well, let me, let me just um, see what, what's out there. So I reached out to my network. Um, of course, I was an alpha. I am an alpha. You know, so I reached out to the network and I said, hey, are there any alphas that are real estate agents in the area? Mm-hmm. And somebody, um, you know, connected me with somebody who wasn't also an alpha. And so he reached out to me and he was like, oh, what are you looking for? I said, well, you know, I've been looking at these apartments in Harlem, but they all started like a half a million dollars. And I definitely don't have that kind of money. Um, but I'm looking for just, you know, like a one bedroom close to the city, like, ideally in Harlem, if you can find one, but you know, if not, not too far, I'm not moving to Jersey. I'm not moving to Brooklyn, but somewhere near Harlem. Cause that's all I knew. He was like, yeah, I got a, I got a few places, but he was like, but why don't you, why don't you come and check out my apartment? Cause I'm mm-hmm. planning on moving. And so what I didn't know was he lived in this building and he had two apartments in the building actually, but the apartment he lived in was a one bedroom. It was really nice. Um, but he was living there with his wife and his kid and they were about to have another kid. And so he was like, I got to go. Right. So he was like, I'm selling both these apartments. I'm not trying to make any gains off of them, but I need to get out of here. Cause I got too many kids. <laughs> you know, I, I'm about to have too many kids running around this one bedroom. 
So I was like, ah, the Bronx, ew. You know, like everybody has that reaction when, when I mentioned the Bronx, but then everybody responds to the Bronx. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I had never really spent any time in the Bronx. I was just basing it off of what everybody else said in the shows and the movies and stuff like that. Right. I had no idea. And there are some places in the Bronx that are ill, but there's some places everywhere that are ill, you know? So he was like, nah, it's, not, it's, it's right across the bridge, right across from Harlem. Like, it, just come see it. And I was like, all right, I'll come check it out. So, um, I actually walked from my apartment in Harlem across the, the 145th bridge and up to where his apartment was. It was up on 161st. And he showed me the first apartment on the seventh floor. And I was like, ah, you know, this is, um, this is okay. You know, it, it's, it's nice. Uh, feels kind of like a dorm room. Not really, not really digging that. I don't really want to invest all this money in a dorm room. I could just live in a dorm room and rent if I wanted to do that. So he was like, all right, let me take you upstairs to my place. So we get up there on the 21st floor of this building. And granted, the building was really nice. Um, but he takes me up to 21st floor and we walk in. And now, granted, he's been living here for like 10 years. He's got stuff everywhere. His kids are running around, whatever. But I walk in and I'm like, yo, this, this feels like a home. This, this feels really good. Like, I, I, I'm digging the energy here. He was like, let me show you, the, show you the view. He pulls up the curtains. He's like look at this view. I was, it's just, it shows the whole like South Bronx is overlooking the Bronx. The, the bedroom was huge. The living room was huge. It was like an 850 square foot apartment, like, which is for most that people sounds like a mansion. Yeah. yeah, in, yeah. For in, most in people in the, in the world, that's going to sound tiny, but like 850 square feet in New York, massive mm-hmm. and all for me. And I was like, wow, how much do you want for this? He was like, I'm selling it for 125. $125,000. Are you serious? That is unheard of. That is, that is not, again, I was looking at apartments across the bridge, studios, walk-ups for half a mil and above. No, right. no amenities, no nothing. This was a doorman, elevator building, two laundry rooms, uh, attached garage, like... $125,000. I was like, I, I, I don't know. I don't have the money right now, but how do I make this happen? How do I make right. this? Happen? I'm not letting this go. I will, I will do what I got to do to make sure this happens. Right. So I had probably, I don't know. I'll say like eight or 9,000 in stocks or something like that. And I was like, I'm gonna liquidate it. I got it. Go get a lender. Um, talk to the lender. I'm like, yo, how do I get a loan for a hundred? Because I've never done this. I, nobody yeah. was helping me. So I talked to this lender. Somebody connected me with a lender. I'm like, how do I make this happen? He's like, well, you got to have, you know, uh, if it's 125,000, you got to have 12,500 in the bank for down payment. And I was like, okay, cool. I can do that. And then he was like, but then you got to have closing costs. And I was like, what are closing costs? Which is a whole other animal. A whole other animal. And I'm like, well, you, you mean I got to pay? For a house that I'm already paying for? Like, I don't understand. I don't understand the concept. So he's like, essentially, you got to get like $21,000. And I was like, ooh, ah, ooh. I've never had that much money my entire life combined. So I don't know how that's going to happen. But I started with the stocks. So now I'm actively saving. This is, this is in December that I saw the apartment. Now, buying an apartment in, 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 it was a co-op as well. So that adds another layer to the length of time it yes. takes to get into a co-op. But I'm, every day I'm saving. I'm putting it all away, putting it all away. I'm still in the apartment in Harlem, but I know that this is my chance. Putting all this money away, putting it all away. I get a nice stack, probably like 16, 17,000. I'm getting close to the amount that I needed. 
So what does my dumb dumb self do? I say, ah, oh, I could flip this, put it in the market, and you know, make a couple stacks off of it real quick, real quick. Because I had been making money. I had been making money in the market. This is where all this money was coming from with the market. I was like, let me throw it all in the market. The 20 something just jumped out. I was with you. I'm like, wow, this is really savvy for the age he was at that time. But yeah. you, then I made then much, I made mis- then I made mistakes. But how then much I, of it put it in put in the market? Oh, I put Tell all of it. I, I put all of it. I, I put all no, of it. No, you didn't. I put all of it in. I was I was I was so desperate to get the money for the apartment that I was like, this is my only way of doing it. This is my only. I'm not gonna make it any other way. But was your was your frat brother putting pressure on you? Like we, I need to get rid of unload this place or no? He because he also had the other apartment in the building to sell. So he, he was working on selling them both. Um, but it was a process. Like we're doing the paperwork. Everything is happening, but it's more so like you don't need the, the final 21,000 or whatever right. it was. You don't need that till closing day. Right. So, but months went by. Like I saw the apartment in December. I didn't end up closing until September or, Oct- September mm-hmm. or August, something like that. So it was like an eight, eight month journey during that time, which I thought I was going to lose it all because I put all that money in the, the market and the market crashed like the next week. So, yeah, I, I can't remember how I was able to like finesse it, but I lost like thousands in the market and I was like, ooh, I might have just blown this. Mm-hmm. And so I took all the money out, just put it in the bank account like normal, like it was. I don't know why I did that. Um, I just got greedy. And then I just I think I was just aggressively saving, aggressively saving. And um, so with how much did you actually end up get end up getting the takeout, though, after making that critical error? Were you able to kind of find some semblance of balance, at least get back to where you were? Or were you at uh, this point in the hole? Yeah. I, no, no, no. I think I was at, I think when I pulled out, I was at like 15 grand. But I had had like 18 or 19, like almost at the 21 that I needed. Mm-hmm. And so I had lost three grand in the, the span of like a month, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe less, you know? So yeah, then I just pulled it all out. And I was like, I got to just, I got to save it the old fashioned way pulling out the paycheck, put it into that account and just, you know, live off ramen noodles. Like can't be going out, can't be doing nothing. So it came down to closing day and I did have enough money. I had, I had just, just enough money, right? Entire account just wiped, went to zero. I remember I, I, I was uh, talking to this girl at the time and uh, I called her right after closing and I was like, that, that was my whole life savings. I literally have no money. I have nothing left, but I have an apartment. And, you know, what's crazy about this is anyone who's been through the closing process, right, the whole home buying process, you know that they give you estimates, Mm-mm. but you don't really know the exact closing Bro, cost I, until, like, the, the last bit of runway. So that, I, this was risky all the way around. I pulled up in that meeting and the the seller, he had allowed me, because so I was like, my lease ended in like April. Right. Mm-hmm. So now this is September. So I spent like three months homeless. Like I was I was couch serving to different, you know, people's apartments like Scott. You've talked to him. Mm-hmm. I lived at Scott's for a little bit. My homegirl, Tina, like I was bouncing around. I had no home. But the reason I was able to do that, because the guy that was selling the apartment allowed me to put my stuff in the apartment. I, mm-hmm. He allowed me to move my boxes in and my furniture. But I couldn't live there until we closed. So when closing date came, he was like, well, you know, your stuff has been in the apartment, so you should probably pay half the maintenance or like you should p- probably pay the maintenance. I'll pay the mortgage, but you pay the maintenance for the apartment. Well, the maintenance was like $800. Right. And again, <laughs> I just spent all my money on this apartment. 
So luckily I had about $800 in my account, but I was fighting them. I'm like, bro, I, I, like, I hear you. I, I get your logic, but I'm not paying it. And my lawyer was like, just pay it, just pay it. Like mm-hmm. be done with it and let's move on, let's close. Cause we had three closing dates that had been canceled and pushed already. This was like the third one, I think. And I'm like, yo, it's not about, I don't want to pay it. I would much rather just be done with this, but like, mm-hmm. that's all my money. That's all I have. So anyway, I wrote a check and paid it and had no money. And so then I, I called my parents. I was like, hey, listen, I closed in the apartment. I now own it. Um, I need just money in my account in case I can't afford food or something, mm-hmm. right? Like I can afford the bills. I've already planned for that. I can afford the apartment. I can afford everything that has to do with that in my life. But just like throw some money in my account just, just so in case something happens. Mm-hmm. I have something. Cause I literally had $0 to my name at that point. And they were like, yeah, we'll give you a couple grand. And I was like, thank you. Thank you so much. And like, I didn't use the money. I just held it. It literally right. was just holding money. Cause I'm not into like borrowing or handouts or anything like that. But I was like, for like safety and life reasons, like just please just let me hold some money in case something happens. Cause something was mm-hmm. always happening. And I always and further, knew- like, There are people who live like that on the edge all the time, especially in New York, right? So many creatives, freelancers were like, they never know when the next dollar is. But then you have temperaments, I think you and I are probably similar in that way, that don't really do well without that cushion, just in case something. It's that that stability and wanderlust in me, right? Like, yeah, I can spend all my money and buy something on a whim. It was pretty much on a whim, but I do need that stability in order to not freak out about it. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's all it was. And I appreciate them and their help for it. You know, like I gave them the money back. It wasn't an issue, but it was just like, I need something that I can fall that I know I can fall back on in case. Mm -hmm. So that's what that was. Before we get off this apartment, do we know what (laughs) that apartment is worth today? Oh, yeah. Well, today it's a little lower than it was because of COVID. But it was I mean, last time I checked, it was in the 300s. So it's tripled in value in seven, six, seven years, something like that. Sounds about right. Yeah. So d- despite the little misstep of dumping the money in the stock market, uh, pretty savvy moves and a lot of foresight for someone your age at the time. Yeah. I mean, uh, not a lot, not a lot of my friends were doing, were in the market or were investing or even have 401ks at that point. Like I was taught, like I was doing things that, you know, like nobody tells you how to do. You just kind of have to learn. But when I would talk to my friends, and I think this is a really important thing when you talk to your friends, you have to really push them to do things like that and save for retirement and save, like have a, um, a rainy day fund and, and, you know, learn about the stock market and stuff like that. Cause that's stuff that's instilled in white people from the beginning. Um, right. And we don't have that in our communities. It was never taught to me. That was my, my dad wasn't talking to me about the stock market. We were just trying to make sure we had, you know, I, I would get one pair of shoes every school year and that was it. Like that was our life. And I was happy for it and I was thankful for it. But we didn't have a bunch of extra money. We didn't have stuff to, you know. But one of the big things that my dad did teach me growing up was you need to save because he never did. And he he wanted he didn't want me to make the same mistakes. So, you know, when I would meet other, you know, young black people or not even young, like some of them were older. When I met Scott and Antonio, you know, you, you've heard their stories. They were not making any money either. But I'm sitting here telling them as a, I was younger than them. I was a few years younger than them. And I'm like you should be saving. You should be doing this. You should be doing that. And they were like out, you know, living their best lives. I think even DeMarcus, I, I, we've had conversations about this and, and, and he always, you know, he always talks about like kind of the moves that I made 
And I was like, I was trying to impart the, the, the knowledge on everybody. It wasn't just my knowledge. I wanted you all to win, you know? And so eventually they all got there, you know, everybody started making some moves, but I just, I think it's important that in our community, we really share the knowledge on how to save and how to invest and how to really set yourself up for a generational wealth. I know you talk about that on your show a lot, but generational wealth, that is something that I really believe in because I didn't come from it. Right. Right. And I think too, you know, there's two elements here. There's two layers. There's one being young black professionals. And then there's also being young black professionals in New York. Right. And if you know anything about living in a metropolitan area, especially there's always an opportunity to be doing something. Yeah. Out to brunch, out to dinner, this show, this concert, this event, supporting people. And and you can get caught up, particularly if you're social, right? You can get caught in that cycle. And I think also as black folks who didn't really grow up with a lot, when we get something, uh, we do, I think, sometimes subconsciously even feel like we gotta put on airs. We have to look like we got we gotta look like we got something. And yes. and a lot of my friends will tell you, you know. They all they all thought I was making big bucks and whatever, but I wasn't making any money. I just was saving it. And they'll they'll, they'll be like, you know, Demetrius the miser. I think the Marcus just called me or something like that. He was like, yo, you, you don't spend any money on nothing, not a single thing. Like I wasn't going out. I, I wasn't trying to spend money. When I first bought the apartment, I had again, I had no money. I'm like, yo, I'm not going out to party. Everybody come to my house and we're drinking on the floor because I have no furniture. That's it. Like I, I got nothing for you, but if you want to see me, here I am. But that's it. I, I'm not spending money. In fact, y'all bring the drinks. I'll just host. I'm paying for the venue. And, you know, like I've had this conversation uh, with financial advisors, including my own, uh, who's also black. And when we really break the numbers down and we talk about creating generational wealth, preparing for retirement, preparing for investments, right, to create your investment portfolio, make sure you have your emergency savings. When you break it all down that way, these salaries that we all have now, right? It's good money. You know, much more money than your family and the people who came before you ever really made, unless you just come from, you know, the Huxable type. But when you're doing all of that and allocating appropriately, yeah. it's really not that much. It's not that much to be like- It doesn't take much. It doesn't yeah. take much. Like, no, what I mean is like, it's not, it's not that much money to be out here brunching every weekend, you right. know, driving the luxury vehicle, buying all designer labor. If you want to set those things up so you have financial security long t- long term, yeah. the six-figure salary or whatever it is is not as much money as you think it is. Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. You think it goes far and it, it drains just as fast. And, and exactly. I think, and especially as you move up in, in salary, your, your, your costs go up dramatically, right? Absolutely. Like even, even when I went from my, you know, um, my $13 an hour job, but I was living in Harlem paying $600 in rent. And then I got an, a job at 62,000 or something like that. Now I'm paying 1500 in rent, right? Like mm-hmm. granted, it's, it's not rent, it's a mortgage, but still might like your costs go up right. because you can afford more, you know? Right. And, and, you know, I working in the tech space and which is a whole other beast, right? Uh, and opportunities present themselves for you to have stock options to exercise. Oh yeah. Like, that's a whole nother thing. Yeah, and if you start to plan for that stuff, yes, it can set you up for life, right? Mm-hmm. But it, mm-hmm. it means you may not be out here like buying in the streets, yeah, like or just doing whatever. It just doesn't work like that, and people really don't get it. Like you know, they they want to know what kind of car you're pushing, you know, what what's really going on when you don't wear your money on your back, uh, yeah. so to speak, for sure. Yeah. Um, and we'll get into before before the end of this interview that the latest phase of your real estate uh, journey. Um, <laughs> I, I don't even know if you knew about that. <laughs> 
Oh, I, Delisha knows. Okay. okay. I find things out. Okay. Um, but so going back though to your professional path, yep. Channel One, traveling the world. Um, yes. What was that like as a black man though? Going to some of these far flung places. Uh, and someone who's traveled extent as someone who's traveled extensively, I know you can go to some of these locations and people they're either really fascinated, yeah, or uh, they don't really know how to react. So how was that for you? Um, I think a lot of the places that I was going for the job, it wasn't too bad, right? Like mm-hmm. there was a couple of instances, like when we go to China, you know, people will come up to me and want to take photos or something like that. But a lot of times I was traveling with a white counterpart, so, you know, we didn't have as many issues. A lot of the places we were going though, a lot of, you know, Central America, a lot of like Caribbean, a lot of, um, you know, East Asia, just a lot of, a lot of the places we were going were were a majority of brown people, right? So I actually didn't stand out in a lot of the stories we were doing. Um, Even when we would do stories in like Europe, we would do like, um, the, the migration crisis, the migrant problem, that the problem I put in quotes, but the migrant issue that was happening in Italy and Greece and stuff like that. And we're talking to Africans and, you know, Egyptians and all, all these different people. And it's like, I'm not the outlier here, actually. You know, these are these are all black and brown people, you know. So it's it's I think depending on the stories that you cover, like now, granted, I have also traveled all through Europe. Right. Very white, very homogenous. You know, there's other places I've been that have been very white, very homogenous. And it's, it can be weird. Like I I've did a story in Lithuania, like there's no black people in Lithuania, you know, there's no black people in Estonia, no black people in Czech Republic. Like, you know, I mean, there are, but it's just like, you know, when I go to those kind of places, you really notice it. When I'm in the Philippines, you don't notice it. When I'm in Honduras, you don't notice it. When I'm in Cuba, you don't notice it. Cause there's, there's black people everywhere, you know, or brown people, black and brown people. So I think it really just depends on the story I'm doing. But a lot of the stories I was covering was actually about just kind of like the downtrodden people of the world. And a lot of them tend to be the black and brown people of the world. Mm -hmm. So you're having what seems to be an enriching experience, uh, particularly, I I love the fact that you're covering uh, black and brown folks in these stories. But you landed eventually at CNN. Right. So how did that recently, happen? actually recently, I, uh, so, so I worked at channel one news for, um, about six years and then we got shut down. Mm. So we all got laid off. Um, this was in 2018, I believe. No, 20, 2018, 2019, something like that. I got laid off. So I got, I got a severance package. So I was able to kind of like, you know, live life pretty normally for a while. Um, and then I started looking for work again. I was, I was on, on unemployment, you know, but unemployment was, you know, it wasn't terrible. I'll put it that way for, for it's, it's not great money, but it's a lot of money to not work, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I was on an unemployment. So I was not really in any hurry to work again. I've been working my entire life, you know, like this was almost like a, a needed vacation in a sense. I went on a couple trips, you know, I enjoyed it. Uh, but then I started looking for work and, um, you know, I, the obvious go-to would be to go back to CBS cause that's where I knew everybody. And, um, you know, that's, that, that's where I, I had a network and my boss. Okay. My boss from 48 hours who told me I should take the job. She got promoted to the president of CBS news, the entire, the entire CBS news. So I came back and I was like, Z congratulations. You got a new job. Um, 
I need a job, <laughs> you know? And so there were some things in the works. Um, it didn't, it didn't work out. Um, it, maybe one day it'll work out, but I didn't know that they were going through a merger with Viacom at the time. So there was a lot of things going on behind the scenes that I didn't know about, but I still wasn't, I wasn't tripping about it because I still had money going on. I, I was working some odd jobs. I did, I did end up doing a freelance gig at 48 hours again. That lasted for about six months. Um, so that covered me for a little while. And then I went back to unemployment, but I had, you know, I had networked at all the different networks. I had done interviews at ABC. I had done interviews at, you know, CNN. I was trying to get a reporter job. Actually, I, I was spending some time trying to get a reporter job because I was reporting at channel one as well. So I had a reel and all that. I at heart am a producer, but I can report. And so I was trying out like, Hey, I know I can get a producer job. Let me see if I can get a reporter job. So that's where I was like, go into these de different networks and trying to get them to hire me as a reporter, which is a little harder, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but I always knew I could fall back on being a producer. So anyway, I spent a year trying to get a reporter job. Things didn't work out. Um, so then I had interviewed at, I had, I had interviewed at CNN like three times um, just for different roles. I even had a contact in um, CNN LA that had reached out to me and, and was trying to get me to take a job out there. And I was all about it because we, my, my fiance and I, we were trying to move back West. And, um, so I was like, yeah, I took the interview. I went out there, um, talked with them. They were really excited. And around that same time, I got a, uh, an email from, um, a lady in SCNN New York. And she was like, Hey, I got your resume from one of the recruiters. They passed you along. I'd really like to talk to you about this job for our digital team. I was like, digital, like, like website. I hadn't, I only worked with TV. Right. So digital is, its own thing. It's a whole, it's a different ball game. It's very different. Like we kind of work in separate realms. Everything is moving towards digital, but I hadn't worked in it in a while. I mean, I hadn't worked in it ever really. So I took the interview and both, both CNN jobs were kind of up at the same time. And I was like, who's going to get back to me first. I really wanted the LA job, but LA was taking forever. Cause I think that was around the time. Like, I think maybe like Kobe died or so, something major happened in LA. So they were busy and New York got back to me and they're like, we'd like to offer you this job. And I was like, ah, I don't know. I kind of want the LA job. I don't really know digital, you know, like that's a different world. We're like, okay, well take three weeks or something to figure this out. I was like, perfect. That should be enough time. LA didn't get back to me. And I was like, you know what? And I talked to the, I talked to one of the guys in LA and he, I was like, Hey, you know, be honest with me. Like, should I take this job in New York or should I potentially turn that job down? Like, are you going to hire me basically? And he was like, well, I, I can't say whether we'll hire you or not, but they do have a good team and they do good work. And I was like, well, I'm really all about doing good work. Like I don't really care where it is. Um, so maybe I should give this a try. And so I accepted in New York, um, LA ended up getting back to me and LA knew I was, a, I was, I had a job at New York. New York didn't know I had a job off, offer in LA. Um, so basically they were like, well, we don't want to step on any toes here. So you go, go, go to New York, work there for a little bit and we'll see in the future what happens. But yeah, so that's how I ended up at CNN in New York in March. And I was there for about a week. And then they emailed the whole company said, don't come back into the office. Pandemic. Mm -hmm. So I've been working from home pretty much my entire time since I've been at CNN. So you've been working uh, at CNN as a digital producer now, you know, Correct. coming up on a year. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot has happened. In addition oh. to COVID, uh, covering the final uh, the final few months uh, yes that's, that's it um the racial injustice police brutality all these things are going on right what um, a year 
Yeah. What a year. And what a year for someone who works in a space where you're in the thick of all of that. Like the rest mm-hmm. of us, we can turn it off and say, I right. can't take it anymore. Right. right. I'm not going to doom scroll another day. Like I need a break. But you're in the midst of all of this. And, you know, at a traditional news outlet where you need to be, quote unquote, unbiased in a lot of ways. Oh, no, so, for sure. For sure. And I think, I, I think, I think, but before we go past that, I think the unbiased part is important to talk about because, uh, as a journalist, your role is to be unbiased and provide unbiased news to the world. Mm-hmm. People confuse that with commentary, right? Mm. Journalism and commentary are not the same thing. And although it may look the same, it may be, you know, an, anch- you know, an anchor on CNN or Fox or MSNBC. Like, it, it looks like news, but sometimes it's just commentary. Mm-hmm. What I do is journalism, right? We work really hard to produce news that has no biases on any side. We're just telling you what happens. We're just telling you what other people are saying. We're just telling you what the information is. You should never know what I feel about a situation. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think where you were going with this question is, you know, when we look at like the killing of Black people on the street and, or, or things being said about, uh, our people or, or minorities or whatever the case may be from people high up in the government, you know, it can be hard to remain unbiased, mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter. We, we still have to do, I can feel how I want to feel, but you're not going to know, right? Because mm-hmm. that is my role as a journalist. If I want to go into commentary, I can go into commentary and then I can say whatever I want to say. I can have my opinions. Uh, you know, you, you see all the people that come up and, and, I hate to, you know, I hate to knock my job, but, you know, like you see a lot of people on CNN um, that on the TV side and they are commentators. That's what they are. That's what they're hired to do. People love watching that. Right. But I think you have to also remember, like on the journalistic side, and there's a big portion of, of CNN where it's devoted to making sure there is no way somebody can misconstrue what is being said. If you go on the website or any of our videos on digital, that there's a there's a hard push to make sure that nobody can misconstrue what we're saying as bias. Mm-hmm. But it can so, be hard. So what's your outlet as a black man working in journalism where you do have to check any biases at the door, personal feelings, especially in the last year where it's just not normal, right? Yeah. This the yeah. what we've experienced and what we've witnessed. So how do you maintain your semblance of peace and sanity in the midst of all of that? I don't know. I think I think sometimes you just have to, you know, I, I think that, and this is not good, but a lot of times I, I feel like we're numb to it. You know, I, I remember when the George Floyd video first came out and this was the very beginning. And I had, you know, I had the raw video. Most people don't see the raw video. I got the raw video because I have to cut it and put it into a video that everybody else can watch. Right. And I, you know how editing works. Um, Marcus knows how editing. You watch this stuff over and over again. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm watching this nine minute video of George Floyd being killed over and over again. He's just screaming through my speakers. You know, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Get off me all day. And then the next day. And then every time there's an update again. Right. It got to the point where my fiance, she couldn't even she would just close the door. Right. She would literally get emotional hearing what was going on in the room as I'm editing, because, yes, it's traumatizing. And you're seeing it flat out every second, every moment, every breath. I'm watching it over and over again. And she'd be like, how can you do that? It's my job. You know, mm-hmm. it, 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 it is what it is. And 
it sucks. And sometimes it does get too much. And sometimes you do have to, like, I, I've had conversations with my boss and it's just like, I have to, I got to skip this one. Cause it was back to back to back to back to back to back to back. It was, it was like for a few months, there was just like every other day, there was some story of somebody being shot and killed or, you know, some situation. And I was pretty much lead on all of those. And sometimes I'd be like, I just need to cut a cat video or some, some crazy animal video or a celebrity death. I don't know. I, I need something else because you can't do it every day. But I don't know that I really have an outlet, especially with COVID. There was no outlets. There was nowhere to go. There was nothing to do. And, and you know, one of the things that I've seen online, particularly amongst Twitter folks um, who've, you know, amassed a following and provide their version of, com- you know, commentary online is feeling like the media is owed some blame for Trump uh, drawing the, the, the following that he did and getting the platform he did to really set himself up for the presidency, right? And they feel like they the media fanned those flames. Do you agree with that? I caution using the term the media, mm-hmm. right? The media is a conglomerate. Movies are the media. TV are the media, you know? News is the media. Everything can be the media, right? Mm-hmm. This goes back to what I was saying earlier. Commentary versus journalism. Mm-hmm. A lot of the things that were being you know, the flames that were being fanned were not coming from journalists. They were com- coming from incendiary commentators. And you have to be, or, or, or articles that have an agenda, but are not, I mean, there, there's, there's an, a ton of organizations that you can look at that, that are um, recognizable, um, respected, you know, the Associated Press, New York Times. There's, there's a lot of different organizations, CBS, you know, there's a lot of different companies that are respected and you know what they're saying is has been vetted and true. The problem is when you have four or five different companies that are giving you true information and then you have 175 giving you whatever they want to give you, it can kind of get lost in the sauce, right? So there are pockets of the media, I guess, that fan some of those flames. But at the end of the day, if you really look into it, they were just telling you what was being said. Now, if what's being said is not true, you know, what are we not? And, and we had conversations like that in the newsroom all the time. Should we even give this time? Because we know it's not true. Should we even discuss this? Because we know it's not true. But if we don't discuss it, then people think we're hiding something. If we do discuss it, then people are getting these ideas like, oh, that must be true. Or, you know, because so-and-so said it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's tough. It's tough. But I will say that, you know, like journalism, we've had journalism since the beginning of this nation, right? Journalism is there to hold people accountable. It's not there to be somebody's friend. It is there to get to the root of injustice. It's there to get to the root of things that are happening in our government. It's there to hold people accountable. You cannot get rid of journalism. Journalism is one of the oldest watchdogs that we have in this country. But you have to know who is a journalist and who is a commentator? They're very different. That's a, that's a great distinction. Do, do you feel that, and now I'm going to look at everything through that lens from here on out, but do you feel that there was a shift though, even within news when the election happened, right? And then the, the things that were being spewed about the election and fraud and this and that, and the election was stolen, when that started to reach a fever pitch, do you think news as well was, was coming right out and saying these are lies? Or do you think the line was towed equally as well as it, it was over the last, let's just say, four years? Yeah, I would say that I would say that news has evolved 
over the past four four years, specifically four years, but even the past eight years, news has evolved, right? Because mm-hmm. things that were, you know, being said during the Obama Obama administration, uh, the during the the campaigns and stuff like that, there was conversations being had about how to cover that, right? Then when the election happened, you know, I feel like things really ramped up on how do we cover this thing? And then as the years went, went on, you know, there was this villainization of the, new, the media, the mainstream media, right? That became like a, a term or whatever. The mainstream media. What that means, I don't know. But the mainstream media really just meant organizations that were trying to get to the bottom of something that they didn't want to be found, right? The mainstream media, the villains of this, the CNNs, right? CNN is the villain in this. I've never worked for a company that has been so, so villainized before, honestly. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm afraid to even tell people I work for CNN because they either really love you or they are like disgusted and dis- they despise it. You know, that's terrible. There should ne- we shouldn't have that. That should not be a thing. I don't need to be your friend, but you should at least respect the fact that we're trying to do some good work here. Like we are tr- not all of us, but I am trying to do the good work of telling people stories that, you know, don't have a voice on their own. That's all we're out here to do. You know, we're trying to get to the bottom of corruption. We're trying to get to the bottom of things that, other normal people don't have access to. We get the access. We uncover those things. Everything that you probably know about the government, you probably got from the news source, whether it's us or somebody else, but you didn't get it yourself. <laughs> it was people like us that are working to get this information. So we are really just trying to inform people and keep people educated on what's happening. Without journalism, you have nothing. People will operate how they want to operate. You know, everybody can just do what they want. Journalists literally do the work to make sure that everybody is held accountable. Okay, that's fair. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, mm-hmm. describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Uh, I knew this question was coming, but of course, not quite prepared for it. I think that in this time of COVID, I think this, this time of pandemic, um, we're all just out here, you know, trying to survive. We're all just trying to to kind of Beat isolation, um, beat loneliness, um, pay bills, put food on the table, um, you know, hope our families stay safe and our loved ones stay alive, you know. And I feel like every day that I can, you know, wake up and be appreciative of everything that I have and see my friends and family, you know. And every day I step, I, I keep moving forward and I can, I can smile and, and not, you know, sink into depression. I think that is an extraordinary thing and a really, it's not an ordinary day. It's a really abnormal time that we're living in. But I think it's extraordinary for every one of us that are, you know, really pushing forward and just kind of keeping our head high. And, and times are hard, you know, you know that, I know that. Um, times are hard for everybody. Everybody has their own kind of battles that they're facing right now. But I think mm-hmm. that if you can make it through a day and, and, and kind of maintain your humanity, maintain who you are, maintain that soul that makes you you, I think we're all doing extraordinary things every day. And you pushed forward in some significant ways uh, during this pandemic and have had some life changes as well I have. during this time. Um, and what's interesting is I talk to people during quarantine is it, it's amazing how it's 
it's brought some people closer together mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, it's made some people wake up to say, this is not for me. Yeah. For you, you got engaged. I did. Right. I to talk to Micah, who yes. is a friend of the show, avid supporter, and also low-key produced this episode. So let's give her her credit. Low-key, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, high-key, really. She, she wrote out all the questions, wrote out the, all the intros. So yeah. So, um, but you you proposed. Now, was that something that was already in the works or did you decide, and I don't know if you want to reveal this, but, or did you decide, you know, in the months into, into pandemic that you were like, no, I'm ready to do this. I'm ready to take it to the next level. So funny story. Um, I, when, when Mike and I first started dating um, many, many years ago, um, you know, we, people would be like, oh, so when are you getting married or whatever? Or she would, and she would ask me that too, you know, cause she wanted to get married. And I, I was trying to kick that can down the road for as long as I could. Cause I wasn't really interested in getting married. Um, and I was like, well, you know, I paid off my student loans. You know, I, I bought this apartment that we're living in. Well, actually she wasn't living there at the time, but I bought this apartment. Like I'm debt free. Um, and I know that you just graduated from grad school, which is great. Um, but you know, that Columbia price tag, Ooh, that's a lot of money to marry into a lot of debt to marry into. I was like, you probably should like pay off your student loan before we start talking about getting married. So what did she do? She went and paid off all this hundred, like a hundred and something thousand dollars of student loan debt. And I'm like, <sighs> why did I, why, why did I even say that? You know? And so I knew, I knew in 20, so 2019, I got, so 2018, uh, or no, wait, wait, sorry. 2021, 20. So 2019. Yeah. 2019, she was planning to, she had a plan to pay off her student loan by her 31st birthday. Um, she had already been working on it for many, many years. Right. But the, the end, the end was in sight. And her goal was to pay it off on her 31st birthday, which is, uh, it was the summer of 2020. I knew that that day was coming. And I also knew I had made a promise back, back in the day that once she paid off her student loans, we'd get married. And uh, I was like, ah, I guess I, I guess I got to uphold my, my end of the bargain here, you know, and not that I didn't, you know, not that I wasn't ready, but it just, it was a, a major catalyst and like, let me get my stuff together, you know? And, um, I was very proud of her. She worked really hard to pay off all, all of that money in a very short amount of time, mm-hmm. very short amount of time. Cause I met her when she was in grad school. Right. So for her to come out and pay off over a hundred thousand dollars in debt in, uh, or maybe it was like, sorry, maybe it was like 60 or 70. I don't know. It was a lot of money either way in that short amount of time, I was very proud of her. And I, um, I was like, you know what? She deserves this anyway. Um, so yeah, I, I, I knew in 2019 that I was going to propose in 2020, 2020 when she was going to pay off her student loan debt. And, uh, I thought I had until July, she paid it off in like April. And I was like, ugh. so luckily I had already bought the ring, but, um, you know, I ended up proposing on her birthday anyway. So it worked out. And you both left New York. Well, in, in, in another, I mean, really, you should just have her on the show and she can talk about all this. But then uh, after paying off her student loan, she ended up getting a new job. And uh, this was all happening on the same day. Like she, she had the, the, she had an interview on her birthday the same day. Like at lunch, she had an interview and I proposed like three hours later, four hours later. And she came back from her interview call um, with a major consulting firm. And um, she was working for the city at the time. So this was big. She was moving from the public to the private sector if, if she got the job. And um, she was like, yeah, they, um, they kind of offered me the job, but it's in D.C. 
Um, so I, I told, I told them I'd, I'd get back to them. And I was like, why? This is your, this is your dream job. Like, this is what you, you've been working for for over a year to get, you've been trying to get into these consulting firms. Why would you, why would you turn it? Well, not turn it down, but not say yes right away. Like, I don't understand. She's like, well, I just, you know, I hadn't talked to you. And I was like, you know, I support this. Like, why would you not take the job? And she was like, well, I would have to move. And I was like, yeah. And in her head, that sounded like, be gone, go move, like take this job. I'm chilling. Right. That's how she interpreted it. Meanwhile, I'm, I'm, my stomach is going up. I'm nervous because I know in two, three hours I'm proposing. I know that we're about to start this life together, but she doesn't know that. So, you know, in her head, it's just like, oh, well, he wants me to go off on my own and live my own life and in, in DC while he's up here in New York. Okay. I, I see how this is. Just dramatic, just dramatic. Mike, I hope you're watching uh, or listening. But um, yeah, I, uh, yeah, w- I proposed a few hours later and then I told her, I was like, yeah, I, I knew when we were talking about it earlier, I, this, this was the plan. And, you know, if you get this job and I think you should take it, we'll make it work. I don't know what we're going to do, but we'll make it work. And that's, I, I got your back on this and, and we're, in, we're in this for the long haul. And you now are living in the DMV. Yeah, yeah. How has that adjustment? I mean, adjustments are weird during COVID because you're not having a normal experience. But how has the adjustment been leaving New York for uh, south of the Mason Mason Dixon? Yeah, yeah. I um, I it's different. I've always loved DC. My dad's from Baltimore, so I spent a lot of time in the area growing up. Um, so I've always loved DC. And then again, I I did a program at Georgetown, so I'm very familiar with the area. Um, I think the biggest thing was just like all right, if we're going to, if we're going to do this, right? Like why leave the apartment that we own or I own to move to a city to pay rent? So then we start having the conversation about maybe we should buy something. And I think a lot of like our family and stuff like that, they were like, well, you're not married yet. Like you're engaged, but yeah, but like you should be planning a wedding. You should be doing all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, but if we want to have kids and stuff like that, like we need somewhere to um, we need somewhere to kind of plant roots, right? New York was never the place to plant roots. I lived there for a decade. I never, I knew I wasn't planting roots there. I only had a one bedroom apartment, right? No roots to be planted. Um, but we start talking about, you know, maybe we should buy a house and she had never bought anything. And so I was like, listen, we can do this. Like, I know we can do this. You've just paid off all this money in a student loan. Take all that money, put it into a bank account, do it just like you were doing before, you know, a thousand dollars per check or something, whatever it was, put it all in a bank account we will be able to afford a house. That's just all you have to do. You just have to be that disciplined every time you do it. And, you know, we both did it. I mean, I had to struggle because I was still paying off the ring, but, you know, we both were doing it. And I was like, you know, let's make this happen. And we, uh, my my cousin, uh, shout out to Erica Akpan. She's a, a real estate agent in DC. And she, um, I hit her up and I was like, hey, can you, you know, like show us around, like show us some spots, whatever. And she had like, 20 spots lined up for us. And we went and looked at them all. And there was one house that really stood out to us and felt, I had that same feeling that I felt in my apartment where I walked in. I said, you know what, this is, this is it. This is home. And we put in an offer that day. And then uh, that was the same day uh, Kamala and, and Joe got announced at the, uh, I think it was November 7th. So mm-hmm. I remember, uh, cause uh, I was supposed to be working, but then I was like, I got to go down to DC. I've been putting this off too long, too long. Um, so DC was crazy that night. Um, but we found that house and then I think we moved in, we, we closed 
with almost in 30 days. It was a little over 30 days, but yeah. So we went from a one bedroom house to like a four bed, uh, one bedroom condo to a four bedroom house. And I love it. I, I love having a yard. I love all these little projects I got to do every day. You know, like it costs so much money. You know, oh, we, had, we, had, project. we had plumbers come in this morning. We had an electrician in the other day. Like it's, it's nonstop, but I love it. Once you become a homeowner, the conversations change, right? Oh, we got it's, so excited when the washer dryer showed up. Exactly. It's like, what appliances do I need? Uh, do you know a good electrician? Like these are the conversations that happen. Oh, how do I take care of the lawn? It's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. But I do. I, so, I really enjoy it. You, you've gone through all these life changes. Uh, you are getting married eventually. I am, yeah. Outside of that, what's on the horizon or what, what do you desire to be on the horizon for Demetrius? Yeah, I, I, I don't know, actually. Um, I think the it's twofold, right? Like we take it back to the wanderlust and the wandering. I miss, the, I miss traveling. I miss, you know, being out in the world. The pandemic kind of shut all that down. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do hope that it opens again soon so I can go back to that. I would love to. Um, I'm just starting to travel again for work. Um, I'm heading to New Mexico next week for a story. So I'm liking the trajectory of that. Um, but I mean, the biggest thing is like, yeah, the endeavor of planning a wedding. I've never done that before. This is something brand new for me. And, and then shortly after, I imagine we'll be having conversations about kids, something new to me. So I got a lot of new things happening in the horizon that like, you know, I've never done before and they'll be new and exciting. But, um, you know, professionally, it's not so much there right now. I'm, I'm kind of taking a break on the professional moves, I think to kind of build up my personal moves, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and my relationship in my household. So that's, that's the plan, I think. Well, I must tell you, you've continued the alpha tradition <laughs> of running long on the December 26th podcast. I told you this was going to happen. It happened yeah, yeah. Time. I blame you. You had too many questions. <laughs> it never fails. You guys always come in and you're like, eh, I don't know. And then, you know, you, you blow the roof off the place uh, in terms of length of, of podcast episodes. So it's because you kept bringing us back to the apartment. That's what it was. It was like, but I want to talk about buying the apartment. I was like, OK, fine, fine. Let's go back. To- thing, right. I know my listeners and I know what people want to know. And I know I can't stand when I hear these things that just don't sound normal. Yeah. in an interview and nobody gets into the mechanics of how it happened. So that's why we do it. Yeah. And it wasn't it wasn't normal by any means. And I don't know how I, I even worked it out, but it, it worked out. So where can people find you online? Oh man, you can pretty much Google me and I'll pop up anywhere. I've, I've, I've when, d- during my channel one days, I was all over the internet. Um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at um, Demetrius Pipkin. Um, if you are a gamer or just interested in, in coming to hang out, I'm on Twitch now. I started streaming live on Twitch, twitch.tv slash infamous DJP. So come watch me play some video games. I pretty much play daily. Um, Besides that, like you can, like I said, you can pretty much Google me and find me anywhere. I'm all over the place. There's not a lot of Demetrius Pipkins in the world. Right. You said I'm out here. If you <laughs> want to find me, you will. Yeah. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate Thanks. it. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to you both for, for ducking and dodging for so long. It's all good. I firmly believe that when people actually make it on, it's the right time. It's the time that they're supposed to be on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. So to our listeners, you know the drill. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you tell somebody about it. If you are interested in what Demetrius is doing, look him up. We're big on this show about knowledge share, and it goes beyond the podcast itself. We've got a network. We've got to build our communication channels. And he's you share quite a bit um, about your journey and, and some of the ins and outs of that. So if you want to reach out to him, please do so. Continue to support us. We appreciate you. We're nothing without you. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. 
Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa, and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER. 